evening. Welcome to Wednesday evening chapel. As for me and my house, we will obey the Lord. Yes, indeed. It's our privilege to have Dr. Jim Russell as the preacher of the evening. You have done more for us, Lord, than we could have ever thought or imagined. We are so blessed. We give you praise. We give you thanks for your calling. We give you thanks for your sustaining. We give you thanks for your challenging and correcting. We give you thanks for your love. And we ask that our hearts would be in tune with yours so that we could hear your word to us this evening for your sake. We are so blessed. We are so blessed. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Take Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. The reading is going to begin with verse 17. Luke 6, 17. He went down with them and stood out on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will grow hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. We have heard the word of the Lord. And that audience heard it that day as Jesus' inaugural sermon. And there are some words in that sermon that we are very used to. And one of those words is blessed. And we were singing together, and I was glad that you knew that old gospel song, uh, Southern Gospel song, Gaither song. I asked a chaplain-like if we could use it. But I want to ask you a question now. What was going through your mind when you sang those words, We are so blessed. You know, there's all kinds of technology that we have in the church 
I've often wondered what would happen if we ever come up with a beam that we could kind of beam at anybody in the congregation and whatever you were thinking at that moment, it would come up on the screen. <laughs> Whew, boy, that'd be different, wouldn't it? What were you thinking when we were singing, we are so blessed? You might have been saying to yourself, oh yeah, man, you're not kidding. Things are going well. I'm telling you, my job's going great. The family's doing good. The kids are passing in school. Finances are where they're supposed to be. I mean, we pay the bills and there's a little bit of money. Oh, we are so blessed. You might have been saying, huh. yeah, right. Have you seen my checkbook? Have you any idea how frazzled my family is? Do, do you have any idea how close I've come to quitting school? Well, I'm glad somebody's blessed. You know, it seems like I just go from one crisis to another. Yeah, right. We're so blessed. What was going through your mind as we sang? Can I say to you right up front, if either of these thoughts were going through your mind, if that's what you were kind of thinking, if that was in the background as you sang those words, then that's not at all what that song was about. And it's not at all what Jesus was talking about when he inaugurated his ministry and said, I want to talk to you guys about those who live the blessed life. I want to talk to you about those who think they're living the blessed life. And I want to make sure that you know how to live the blessed life life. They're familiar words. Jesus talks about them. And, and when we hear them, for the most part, there's a tendency for us, our minds, to run to Matthew, to the Sermon on the Mount. But this is not the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Sermon on the Plain. And it's an interesting situation. I, as I did research on this, I, I discovered that kind of down through time, Bible scholars have kind of debated back and forth whether this is the same message but with a little bit different twist. Or, But as more and more with study has been done in historical context and geographical context, it really seems to be that Jesus taught these principles much more than one time. And here we have Jesus not on the mountain, and not in the region of Matthew 5, but he is in a different place. He's on a plain. He's, he's in an area in, in Galilee that's really kind of known as the garden spot. It's, it's the place that the, the kind of rich and famous would sometimes go to get away from the hustle and the bustle. It's, it's the place where if there was a, a middle class, it would be found there. It, it is, yes, a, a rural uh, agricultural area, but, but it's also a trade route. And, and there are businessmen, both Jews and Gentiles, traveling through here on their way to Tyre and Sidon to be a part of that great commerce that came in from the Mediterranean Sea. And it's very interesting that as Luke recalls for us Jesus coming down from the mountain to preach and inaugurate his ministry in that area, it's very interesting that this man of great compassion remembers that Jesus' ministry here is very cross-cultural. For there are Jews and Gentiles. There are rich and poor. There's the middle class. There's the vacationer. There's the business person. I mean, this is quite a crowd that's gathered here. And he chooses a very beautiful place to do it. It's, it's, it's really known as kind of the place where you would go when the weather is bad every place else. You would go here, and this would be a place to kind of rest and relax. Well, as I was looking at this, let me just kind of throw this in. I always, always liked it when I'd say to my people sometimes when I'm preaching, now this is an outline of another message, okay? But I just couldn't pass it up, so let me just throw it out to you. So for those of you who are preparing to preach, 
Jesus gives us this wonderful example about how good sermons really come about. Because he's about to preach a sermon that's going to knock their socks off. It's going to turn their world upside down. And not so much because of his eloquence or his delivery, but because he is going to challenge the deep core values of their mind and their soul and what they really believe, what they really cling to, and what they hold dear. He's about to challenge every priority and core value that they cling to. He is about to offer them an opportunity to be transformed and not just informed. And how did he come to a place where he could deliver such a message? Well, the context tells us that first of all, he spent a lot of time in prayer. Let me tell you a little secret. Sermons don't start in the study. They start on your knees. Amen? That's really true. I can tell you 35 years of pastoring, that is really where they start. They start on your knees. For you see, you always want to talk to people, you always want to talk to God about people before you ever talk to people about God. And that's true about people that you're trying to witness to and win. Always talk to God about them before you talk to them about God. So Jesus begins on his knees. And he's talking to the Lord about what he should say. And then when he comes down, Luke reminds us, and, and the great compassionate healer that he was, uh, doctor and physician, he always captures this part of the ministry of Jesus. Before Jesus teaches and preaches, he heals. And to do that, he had to kind of touch people and spend time with people and, and be among people. Sermons don't really start in the study. They start on your knees, and then they begin to formulate by spending time with people. If you don't spend time with the people of your church, you will never be able to preach contextually. You'll never be able to touch and scratch where they itch. And I don't mean by that to please their ears, but I mean but to know what their needs are. So you start on your knees. Then you spend time with people. And I'm not diminishing the study. Then you take those experiences to the study. And you let God guide you. And from your study and immersion and confidence in the word of God, then when you go to proclaim, you can knock their socks off. Not because you're great, but because of the transforming power of the gospel of God. What an awesome privilege we have as pastors to be able to do that. Well, after spending that night in prayer, Jesus comes down the mountain in the power of the Holy Spirit and preaches this outstanding sermon with great spiritual fervor and passion. And it literally just reaches down into their hearts and their minds, shakes them all up because it is not at all what they expected to hear. Neither is it what the disciples expected nor what the crowd expected. For see, Jesus knows his audience. He knows what their values are. He knows what they've been taught to value and hold dear. It's the truth of the matter is that people haven't changed much. In the audience that Jesus addresses, they have lived in a time of what we might call prosperity theology. Oh man, if you're healthy, wealthy, and wise, God loves you. Everything's going just fine. You are so blessed. But if something's wrong, man, if the checkbook's empty, if your kids are sick, if your business is falling apart, man, you have, oh, you've got the curse of God on you. You have done something terrible. It hasn't changed a whole lot today. Look at the airwaves and the printed media. There is so much prosperity theology today. No wonder people don't really know what the blessed life is. But Jesus knows. You know, it's an interesting thing also that in the language of the, of the scripture, 
where it talks about Jesus lifting up his head and, and opening his mouth. This language tells us that Jesus, number one, he knows what the blessed life is. There's no doubt about it. He has the answer. With great confidence, he is going to shake up their world. But it also tells us that the language insinuates that he looked right at them. He was not timid. He was not shy. He was not apologetic. He knew he was going to turn their world upside down, but he also knows that truth sets you free. Do you believe that tonight? Amen. And you've got to know something. When you preach the truth of God's Word, you set your people up to be free, to be all that God ever wanted them to be. Do it without apology, but do it in love. And do it having spent some time on your knees and having spent some time among them as Jesus sets that example for us. Well, let's jump into the message. Who are the truly blessed people on earth? Now, when Jesus used this word blessed, and if I were to have you to define it, we might all define it just a little bit different, but, but it basically comes from the word makurios, which means to be highly favored. I mean, not just, you know, little blessed, but I mean, man, this is the big deal. I mean, this is highly favored. I happened to have the privilege of being at the uh, Nazarene Black Conference with uh, uh, Pastor Joe Warrington and... Man, there was a, a speaker, uh, Dr. McKenzie, and she spoke. <laughs> oh, guys, I wish I could preach like that. Uh, I'm telling you, she was awesome. I just, I sat on the edge of my chair. I began to cry and weep and sweat and everything else. I mean, it was, it was awesome. But in her message using Joseph's life, she was trying to convince us from the Word of God that no matter what we were going through, the most important thing for us to remember is that we were blessed and highly favored. And she got it right out of the Word of God. But now the way she said it was like this. You are blessed and highly favored. <laughs> I like that. We ought to teach that. We ought, we ought, when you graduate from Nazarene Bible College, you can't say blessed. You say blessed and highly favored. You know. But man, she had that crowd going. But it, and, and her content was outstanding. But what was really neat was her confidence in the fact that she really believed that with all of her heart. That when you belong to God, you're blessed and highly favored. Well, there's another interesting thing about this word. In its classical origin, it was used by the poets to talk about the fact that the gods up on Mount Olympus, they had it all. And us little peons down here, we get nothing. And that rang in the ears of those Jews and Gentiles as they heard that with the influence of that Greco-Roman culture. And they know kind of the tendency to think, yeah, 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 it's really out of my reach. And what Jesus wants to do is transform the thinking of people to understand that the blessing of God is never out of your reach. Jesus brings it to us and makes it possible. Well... As all of this is going through their minds, Jesus begins to say some things that are just not what they expect at all. How about this? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Oh, well, obviously he meant poor in spirit. No. No, he didn't say poor in spirit this time. This time he simply said, blessed are you who are poor. And all those middle class and the richer cats and the business guys and the vacationing people are sitting there going, say what? How can you be poor and makurios. No, 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 Jesus, that doesn't jive. But what they were really hearing Jesus say is, the kingdom of God is not just for the rich or the famous or the powerful. Even if you have none of these things, God loves you and says, welcome, come on in. 
even, now listen to me now, even if your church never qualifies to be a K-church, even if you never become a mega-church, Jesus says your ministry is a part of the kingdom. Welcome, pastor. Welcome, church. The kingdom is not based upon those things. I want to ask you a question as you get ready to go out into ministry. Will you believe what I just told you? Will you dare to believe that and be faithful or even... Will you believe it so that you can avoid professional envy that'll eat you alive because your church isn't like that church? See, God doesn't measure the kingdom that way. But ladies and gentlemen, even in the organized church, if we're not careful, we'll measure the kingdom that way. Now, I'm not against numbers, I'm not against stats, and I'm certainly not against church growth. But the main thing is, you need to have a healthy church. A church that teaches kingdom principles. A church where everybody is included and no one is excluded. And you help them to understand if we're blessed of the Lord, it's not because of what we have, but because of whose we are. Amen? You got to say amen, I get done faster. Oh, yeah. no. Shut up over there. I knew that was coming. How about this one? Blessed are you who are hungry now. For you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't like waiting on someday, do you? Uh, can we admit that? Can we just be honest with each other? Yeah, yeah, sounds good, Lord. But when is my someday? Well, there's one thing I've learned about the Lord. He's seldom early. He's never late. He's always right on time. Your someday... The day when your tears become laughter, the day when your hunger becomes filled, will be at just the right time, at just the right moment, in just the right way, when you live in the kingdom of God. When you live where the king controls those things for you. You see, Jesus is saying, and they're hearing this, and I wonder if we're hearing it, there's more to life than the here and the now. I offer you a hope that goes beyond the here and the now. And your people, when you pastor them, they can't help it. You know, one foot's kind of tied in the here and the now. And, and their kids and the school and the activities and the bills and the mortgages and all the stuff they got to do and then trying to do stuff for the church too. Sometimes they wonder if it's ever going to get any better. And you need to make sure that they understand, yes, it always gets better with God. When? When, Pastor? When's it going to get better for me? When the time is right. When you've learned from the struggle. When you've grown through the trial. When it brings the most glory to God and the most good for you. That's when it will get better. I found this in Barclay's Daily Study Bible. And I really can't say it better. So let me just read it to you. Jesus had no doubt which way brought happiness. Jesus promised his disciples three things. That they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. <laughs> well, now we like those first two. <laughs> it was sounding really good, Jesus, till you got to that one. G.K. Chesterton, whose principles constantly got him into trouble, once said, I like getting into hot water. It keeps you clean. <laughs> It is Jesus' teaching that the joy of heaven will, be amply, will amply compensate for the trouble on earth. As Paul said, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The challenge of the beatitude is 
Will you be happy in the world's way or you'll be happy in Christ's way? Uh, always in trouble? Well, I guess. I mean, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you and, and say your name is evil because of the Son of Man. What is he saying? What Jesus is saying to them, and they're hearing, and I'm hoping we're hearing, is, you know, what I'm telling you, says Jesus, is not popular wisdom. It's not pop theology. It's not pop practice. As a matter of fact, people will reject. They'll ridicule and hate you if you embrace what I'm telling you today because they hate truth that challenges their thinking. People don't like to change. They don't like you rocking their boat. <laughs> they don't like you telling them they're wrong. They don't like conviction. I've never met a person under conviction who said, this is fun. <laughs> when I was a student here, Wayne Rose, who is now a, a tenured evangelist for many years in the church, the Nazarene, we were in a quartet together, and Wayne was our manager, and he's a wild and crazy guy. Wayne used to work for the cable company back when it was brand new, and they're digging the ditches and laying all the cable and stuff. And, and this guy, he's a witness in nut. I mean, he'll witness to a tree if it stands still, you know. <laughs> but he used to say to people that work for him, this is where we got all politically correct and everything, he would say to them, I want you to know I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you'll be miserable, that you can't eat, that you can't sleep. I'm, I'm praying you'll get so sick you'll puke until you get saved. Now, if I did that, it'd slap me, but it always worked for him. I don't know how he did it. But people under conviction aren't happy people. People challenged by truth, it shakes them up. Let me ask you as you go out into ministry, will you preach the truth in love or will you choose that which is popular and tickles people's ears and fancies? Will your sermon substance be that which makes you popular or will you declare the kingdom principles of God very lovingly and very kindly? You don't need to fleece the flock, but you need to tell them the truth so they can be free and truly blessed and happy. Well, finally, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward. Have hope. This is nothing new. You've seen it before. You see the way the ancestors have treated the people of God. But they outlived it, they overcame it, and their reward was greater than their punishment. Well, then you get to the part that nobody likes, the woes. There was an NBC student that went to a psychology conference representing our counseling cohort here. And they were talking about different things and contrasting different emotions. And, and the, the speaker came to the NBC student. He said, uh, tell me, what's the opposite of woe? He looked at him and he said, I think it's giddy up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jesus isn't kidding about these woes, though. These are very serious. You see, what he's saying, and I need to kind of run through these right quick, but what he's saying is that those of you who have the wealth of the world and trust in it as your blessing, it's all you get. Uh, I mean, you may be enjoying it now, and you may have, you know, three and a half kids and four and a half cars or whatever it is they say that we have these days, but, but that's all you get. That's the end of it. It's good only for the here and now. And alas... What you have now will do you no good in eternity. You'll end up empty, dissatisfied, full of grief. You laugh now, but you'll be weeping when judgment comes. And alas, the shallow praise you receive from the world will avail you nothing before Almighty God. It's as false as the false prophets who came before you. You're fine. You're doing great. Look at your wealth. It proves you're right with God. And Jesus says, don't believe that for one minute. It's a lie. The people that you and I minister to are caught in the tension of these two perspectives. The world values possessions and comfort. The kingdom values character and holiness. Pastor, what will you value? One time I came to a church that was 
they were just kind of known for never being unified. I think the only thing they would probably ever have a unanimous vote on is if they would vote unanimously to never be unanimous. <laughs> they just had a hard time marching to the same drum. And, and I was just beating my brains out because I'd, I'd never really had that before. And, and, and usually the churches where I'd pastored, it was kind of easy. To, everybody got on board and we just marched together and the church grew. And they thought I was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it was just great. But this church wasn't working out that way. And uh, I began to pray, oh God, what did I do wrong? Why'd you send me here? And all that stuff, you know. And I got real discouraged, to be honest with you. I, I got to the point where I said, man, if this is pastoring, I'd rather go fishing. This is terrible. So I had a, a great mentor in my doctoral program, and um, I made an appointment to talk to him. And I poured my heart out, and I cried, and he cried, and we wept, and we got all done. And he, uh, he, he was just awesome. I mean, and when he spoke, his language was so precise, and his vocabulary was so, you know. And I'm expecting this awesome word of wisdom to come booming down. And instead, he looked at me, and he said, oh, man. I know what your problem is. I said, oh, really? He said, yes. You have forgotten what your job is as pastor. I said, are you kidding me? I'm working harder than I ever worked in my life. He said, I know, but you're not doing the right thing. Well, I said, well, to help me. What in the world is the right thing? He gave me some of the greatest advice I, want to, advice I want to pass it on to you. He said, you know, your main job as a pastor is to be happy in Jesus and let it become contagious. Now, this guy had a degree in psychology from Harvard. But he took his Bible with him to Harvard, and he had his Bible with him when he left Harvard, and he was a very wise man. And do you know that is really true? Of all the things that you will do, if you will know this happiness that Jesus talks about, if you'll demonstrate it and live it and let it be a core value in your life, because you see your core values are what you believe, and what you believe is what you'll practice. And what you'll practice is really what you'll preach. If you will dare to be happy in Jesus and not determine whether or not you're blessed or happy by what the world says makes you blessed or happy, my friend, when that becomes contagious and your church begins to pick up on it and your people begin to discover it and that truth begins to set them free, you'll march together as a mighty force, an unstoppable force for the kingdom of God. Well, I want to take you to another scripture. And I want you just to listen. This is the Apostle Paul talking about the Ephesians and praying for the Ephesians. And uh, he kind of gives us a picture of what it's really like to know that you're blessed. So I want you just to listen to these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You're blessed that God should love you so and say, I'm going to make you holy and blameless and a force of love in this world. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Oh, I've been adopted. I'm blessed. Have you been adopted? Well, then you're blessed. For Jesus chose you. You weren't born his relative. He wasn't stuck with you. He chose you. Because he loves you. You're blessed. 
In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Oh my goodness. Have you been redeemed? Have you been blood washed and blood bought? Do you know that your sins have been washed away? Do you know that you belong to God? Do you have assurance that everything's all right because of what Jesus has done? Ah, man, you're blessed. Amen? You're supposed to be amening on these points. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Jesus Christ. Oh man, you've got life with a purpose. And it lasts for eternity. You are blessed. And you can't measure it with a checkbook. And you can't measure it with a church graph. And you can't measure it by accolades. You can't measure it by any of that stuff. You measure it by this dynamic happiness and joy that is yours because you belong to Jesus. Amen. And ladies and gentlemen, if we're not happy in that, if that's not enough for us, it'll never be enough for our people. If the church of Jesus Christ is not blessed because of these things, it will really not be the church of Jesus Christ. You know what we're going to do? We're going to sing that song again. It's going to be our benediction. We're going to sing, we're so blessed. Put your checkbook away. Put your grade book away. <laughs> Put your schedule away. Forget your old car that breaks down all the time. That's part of going to Bible college. Hallelujah. <laughs> Forget the stress and the strain. It's preparing you for ministry. I'd love to lie to you and tell you it'll get easier when you get out there, but it won't, will it, Pastor? <laughs> but it gets easier when you stay happy in the Lord and let it become contagious. Do, will you believe Jesus tonight? Stand with me. Do you believe Jesus tonight when he says to you, you're blessed even though you may be going through a time of emptiness or feeling a little poor. You're blessed even though now you're going through some suffering. You're blessed even though you've got some people giving you a bad time and it's unjust and it's not right. But you're blessed because you're living the blessed life that comes from belonging to Jesus. Clear your minds. Don't let the world press you into its mold and tell you what you need to live the blessed life. The blessed life comes from walking with the Lord. Let's sing it. Well, I want to leave you on the note that Dr. McKenzie left us on at that conference. <laughs> we are blessed uh, and highly favored. Uh. <laughs> Say it with me. We are blessed uh, and highly favored. Now, I want to know if you believe it, say amen. amen. Go out of here and let it be contagious. God bless you. Lord be with you.